What's up everybody? Welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thank you all for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the channel, you can help it out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also help out the channel by leaving a review wherever you listen to this podcast. So I'm glad to be back and thanks again everybody. I really do appreciate all the support I've been getting. The numbers have been growing quite substantially lately, so please continue to tell a friend. Today we're going to talk about cassava sciences and Alzheimer's disease. Cassava themselves are quite a small company, but they've seen a pretty substantial increase in valuation lately. So we're going to touch on their preclinical data, the phase 2A data they released late last fall. And then we're going to move on to my suspicions for the upcoming data release that they're going to have. And then we're going to finish up with a 2019 recap and then a portfolio overview for the last week. So that's the plan for today. And with that, let's just get right into it. So Cassava Sciences, ticker symbol S-A-V-A, they closed on Friday the 10th of January at $8.15 a share, giving them a valuation of $140 million. And like I said, I think it was around a month ago, they were trading about $1 and change, so they have increased quite a bit lately, but uh, I think there is some good justification for that, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. The company is formerly known as Pain Therapeutics, ticker P-T-I-E, and they were trying to develop a drug called Remoxy, which is an extended-release oxycodone. And they were developing this as a means to deter abuse in patients, but they ran into a lot of trouble with the FDA just not seeing eye-to-eye on how this drug would be beneficial to patients. So the company ended up dropping development of the drug, and they rebranded themselves as a neuroscience company with a focus on Alzheimer's disease. So the company and their pipeline have a single molecule as well as a diagnostic test related to Alzheimer's disease. But in this talk today, I'm just going to talk about their molecule and its potential in Alzheimer's disease. But before we get into that, we first need to touch on Alzheimer's disease. And so for those who don't know, Alzheimer's is a chronic neurodegenerative disease. Symptoms of this disease include things like disorientation, language problems, mood swings, loss of motivation, as well as behavioral issues. The risk factors for this disease, because we don't really know what causes it, they include things like family history, history of head injuries, depression, hypertension. So it's all this conglomerate of things that we don't know why they contribute to it, but we do know that they do. One of the issues with Alzheimer's is that diagnosis is often delayed because these symptoms are mistaken for normal aging. We know that the disease mechanism is not understood very well. I've touched on this in other videos, so I'll I'll put a playlist together for everybody who wants to look at that. I've talked a lot about Biogen and their attempt to affect Alzheimer's by modifying amyloid beta and how that hasn't worked out very well. But for our purposes today, this is interesting because it's a different mechanism. So we know that amyloid beta is able to bind to receptors on neurons, and somehow this leads to hyperphosphorylation of tau. And what we're going to see later is that you can alter this relationship through a chemical means, and this might lead to an improvement in the disease. So we're going to touch on that, but there are multiple different hypotheses around how Alzheimer's develops, and we still don't really know what the primary mechanism is. The treatments that exist today don't alter the course of the disease, but they do affect the symptoms that are present. So Dinepazil, which has been approved for a long time, is an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, and that seems to prevent a lot of the negative effects of Alzheimer's. Other treatments that have been around for a little while now, amantadine and memantine are NMDA receptor antagonists, and these also seem to help patients as well. 
Now, when it comes to the size of the market of Alzheimer's, currently there's 26.6 million people worldwide that are diagnosed, 5.8 million people here in the USA, and this number seems to be increasing as the demographics are such that the baby boomers are now in that age where it's more common to get diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. I have here on the right an estimate of the revenue that's been generated from previously approved Alzheimer's drugs. The one of most notable importance is Aircept, and that reached a peak of $3.5 billion in sales, and that was in 2009 and 2010. The sum of all four of these drugs in the revenue was $6.5 billion in 2009, so there's obviously a huge market potential here for a disease-modifying drug. And another thing we need to consider is that a drug that can change the course of the disease might garner a premium even more than what was charged by the company that developed Aricet. So let's talk about cassava science's main molecule, which is PTI-125. And this is a drug that's able to bind to a protein called filament A when it's in a special conformation. And I'll talk about that in a second. But the role of filament A is to act as a scaffold protein. And this is a very important function because often proteins are just hanging around in the cytosol randomly, and they need to be brought together in order to mediate the transduction of a signal. So filament A is one of various different scaffold proteins in the cell, and it's been characterized as bringing 90 different proteins together to mediate the function of a signal through a cell. And I know it's very broad, but you have to think about all the different pathways and the different ways that cells can communicate through these means. So filament A is just one version of that. And the hypothesis is that amyloid beta outside of the cell binds to the alpha-7 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor. And when it does this, it recruits filament A on the inside of the cell, altering its conformation and mediating dysfunctional signaling. One of the consequences of this pathway here through amyloid beta and this alpha-7 nicotinic receptor is that it leads to hyperphosphorylation of tau. So this is how we go back to the amyloid hypothesis and the tau hypothesis that apparently through this relationship, amyloid beta is able to affect hyperphosphorylation of tau and lead to the deleterious effects associated with amyloid beta. Now what PTI-125 does is it binds to filament A when it's in that conformation that's enabled by the binding of amyloid beta to the alpha-7 nicotinic receptor. And when PTI binds to filament A, it's able to fix its conformation such that there is no dysfunctional signaling, and it prevents tau phosphorylation. There's another mechanism that involves CD14, the toll-like receptor 4, and neuroinflammation, but I'm not going to talk about that. The ability of PTI-125 to affect this amyloid beta hyperphosphorylation of tau is probably the primary mechanism in which it has any effect at all. So that's the premise on which the company has developed this drug further, and I'll talk about a little bit of evidence that suggests that this is true. So I'm showing here some Western blot data from the lab that developed this drug, and what they did here is they took human hippocampus, they treated it with amyloid beta with or without PTI-125 for a certain amount of time. And what they saw was when they treated the hippocampus with amyloid beta, we see this big increase in tau phosphorylation, which you can see here. And for those just listening, just take my word for it. But then when they treat it as well with PTI-125, we see a dose-dependent decrease in the amount of phosphorylation and nitrosylation of tau. So this suggests that 
PTI125 is able to disturb that relationship between amyloid beta, the alpha-7 nicotinic receptor, and phosphorylation of tau, thus hopefully preventing Alzheimer's disease and some of the cognition effects that are associated with that. So this was just done in vitro. Now I want to move to the phase 2a data that they showed in late fall last year and we'll see whether or not there was an effect in actual living humans. So the first thing they did was uh, pharmacokinetics. So they looked at how the drug behaves when it's placed into humans and this drug is taken uh, twice daily, 100 milligram doses. And what they saw here, I mean, at least for pharmacokinetics, you're looking for whether or not the drug is able to stay in somebody's system for a certain amount of time. You want to make sure that it is, in fact, absorbed and that there is an appropriate dosing schedule that can exist. If there was any accumulation of the drug that occurred between day one and day 28, and that didn't seem to be the case, the drug seems to behave similarly, whether they're being dosed on the first day or on day 28. So that's good to see. We also see that the half-life is still around 12 hours either way. So this dosing schedule suggests that the drug is around, and if it will have an effect, it should have that effect given these parameters. They're only looking here, when it comes to the biomarker data, at a change from baseline to day 28. And I'm going to talk about this timeline later because I think it's relevant when we get to the cognition effects that we're looking forward to seeing in the phase 2b data. But Basically here what we see is the levels of tau, levels of A-beta, neurofilamin light chain, uh, neurogranin, as well as this protein YKL40. And what we see across the board, except for A-beta, is that in the CSF, as well as the plasma, there's a pretty substantial decrease in the levels of these proteins. We see that in A-beta, there's an increase in the CSF, as well as the plasma, and it's a little bit of a strange correlation, but actually an increase in the level of CSF-A-beta actually correlates to a decrease inside of cells or inside the interstitial space. So that's actually a beneficial thing to see. If you look at the individual patients here, it makes it a little easier to see the data, but pretty much across the board, every patient responded relatively well. There's two patients in the A-beta frame where we see that in fact their CSF A-beta decreased, which is not a good thing. That means that there's increasing amounts of A-beta inside the cells or inside the interstitial space. To look at the A-beta data on its own, I'm going to blow this up a little bit, and we can see here that except for those two patients, everybody else increased the levels of A-beta in the CSF, which is a beneficial thing if you're trying to lower Alzheimer's disease. Looking at plasma biomarkers, so the same thing, but just instead of the CSF, they looked in plasma. Um, it was a little more mixed, but in general, the trend was going in the right direction. I'm not going to spend too much more time on that. And they also saw that plasma A-beta increased, and I think that this relationship is less tenuous than the CSF relationship with the levels of A-beta inside the cell, but this does go in the proper direction. They also looked at cytokines given the effects of PTI-125 on neuroinflammation, and these didn't see a very huge effect, but did kind of go in the right direction, so that's also good to see. And then they also showed this Western blot data, and what they were looking at specifically is in plasma, they wanted to see whether or not tau phosphorylation or nitrosylation was decreased after dosing. Now, Western blot is not a very quantifiable way to look at these things, but it does give us some insight into it, but I have to take these with a grain of salt. 
since I personally did a lot of work using this technique in my in my past life. But basically my issue with it, especially with plasma samples, is that it's tough to normalize because you need to make sure that the amount you put in is compared to a standard. And here what they used as their standard is tau when it came to the phosphorylation, but we don't really know what to compare tau to. And some people like to use proteins like albumin as just a metric to show how much was added to each well. And they didn't really show that here, which I don't like a lot, but what they're showing here is that at day 28, they happen to see a significant decrease in tau as well as the phosphorylation of tau and nitrosylation. I'll leave it at that, but this is the phase 2a data, and I think in general it does show that PTI-125 seems to have an effect within 28 days to lower these markers associated with Alzheimer's disease. Now I want to move on to the bear case because there is a, an argument to be made that this is just noise and that there is no actual effect going on here. And one of the things I found particularly interesting is that apparently there have been partial agonists or positive allosteric modulators of the alpha-7 nicotinic receptor and these have failed in clinical trials. And you would assume that if you can influence the, behavior, the interaction between amyloid beta and this receptor, you might have a case for improving Alzheimer's disease. Now, the way the disease progress happens, binding of A-beta to the alpha-7 nicotinic receptor can occur at femtomolar concentrations. And what that means is that the binding is very, very tight. And if an antibody comes around that has less affinity to the receptor than A-beta, treating patients later in their disease might not influence the course of that disease at all. So that's a caveat where actually PTI-125 might be a benefit here, but it would have been nice to see some validation of this target by previous trials. Another thing to keep in mind is that filament A is later in the signaling pathway, so there might be other targets of amyloid beta that can cause disease as well. Another thing is that most of the preclinical data was generated from the same lab, which you don't love to see. Maybe I'm just suspicious of academia, but it would have been nice to see some validation of this preclinical data from a completely unrelated laboratory. Although I must say that the company themselves have been making a case, obviously through their phase 1 and their phase 2a data to show that there is something going on here, but it is something to keep in mind. And then the last thing is that the phase 2b data, as well as the 2a data, is only a 28-day treatment. And is this truly long enough to see an effect? And then finally, the plasma CSF data that we see here is suggestive of something going on, but it's not a definitive indication of an effect here. So that's something also to keep in mind. Now, in terms of catalysts, the recent increase in the stock has been triggered by the insider buying of a director, and his name is Robert Sanford. He's bought $1 million worth of the stock at $2.20. And this really triggered a big rush of retail investors of buying the stock. And it touched 10 for a while and it's back down to 8 and, and change. But this insider buying has been very encouraging to everybody. And we saw actually, this was after the data was released. When the Phase 2A data released initially, there wasn't a big move in the stock. It increased a little bit, but people weren't entirely convinced. And then once they saw that, this Robert Sanford character started buying, everybody kind of jumped in, and, and that was that. So the next catalyst is the release of Phase 2B data, which is going to occur in 2020, it says, but it's likely to happen in Q2 of this year. The primary endpoint is, again, these 
CSF biomarkers. They want to validate the phase 2A data, but there's also a secondary endpoint, which is going to include cognitive function. So obviously everybody's much more interested in cognitive function because that's going to be the primary endpoint for a future trial that's going to be very important for them to file an NDA. Now their current cash is sitting at $17 million, their net cash that is, and as I said they're trading at a market cap of $140 billion, so right now they're getting this relatively generous valuation, all things considered, but their year-to-date operating expenses are only $3.3 million whereas in 2018 they were 5.9 million. So they're not burning a ton of cash, but obviously if they were to try to take this to phase three, their expenses would increase substantially and they would need to raise money to fund that somehow. So given all of this, my verdict is that I'm not taking a position. And the reason for that is I think the 28 day time frame is just too short to see any significant effects on cognition. I looked through a bunch of different phase two trials and the length of the trials vary tremendously. You see some where they go up to 52 weeks, some where it's just 24, and there are a couple of them that they only do 28 days, but part of me likes the short-term trial to see the differences in biomarkers, but for cognition, I really think you need a longer time frame. So the way I'm going to play this in the future is I'm not going to take a position now. I think that the secondary endpoint is going to be a failure. But because it's a secondary endpoint, I think the differences they're going to see in biomarkers in the CSF are going to be able to justify doing another trial, which is going to be a lot longer and more extensive with more patients. And here they're more likely to see an effect on cognition. And so after this phase 2B data is released, I think the stock will decline on that failed secondary endpoint. But I think that's going to be a buying opportunity because when they do this longer term trial, they're likely to see cognition because it's going to be more extensive, more patients, and it'll be long enough where patients can actually see an effect. So that's when I'm going to decide when to take a position. But I do think the company is exciting. So I'm, uh, I'm happy I got the chance to take a look at the data. So that's what I have for Cassava Sciences. Let me know what you think. Leave me a comment and uh, tell me where I'm wrong. Now, in terms of what's upcoming, the JP Morgan 38th Annual Healthcare Conference is coming up starting on the 13th of January. Uh, there's a ton going on. Almost every biotech company that's worth talking about is going to be presenting there, so I'm going to be keeping an eye out on that. We did almost run into a war with Iran. This doesn't have too many impacts on the biotech sector specifically, but it is kind of a risk-off event where people don't feel comfortable holding risky assets like biotechs, but it seems like war has been averted. So uh, we'll, we'll see how the fallout does occur over that. But I think right now it's, um, it's more looking at the economy, the trade deal, things like that. I'm keeping an eye out for the Amun PDUFA date, which is in late January 2020, and we have not seen any updates so far. And then I have a list of biotech companies. So with that, I want to touch on a... 2019 wrap-up, and I'm showing that here on my screen. I finished up the year at 14.5%, and this is about half of what the XVI did, but, you know, sometimes it just works out like that. I think my biggest loser for the whole year was Bluebird, as well as the Nash stocks. They also did pretty terrible. On a percent basis, though, I think Marker was the one that took the cake, and hopefully they can figure out that clinical hold that's going on. The overall win, I think, from a from a total amount is Ameren. 
And then from a percentage standpoint was Clearside, even though they're currently my biggest losers. So that's a 2019 overall pretty good year. Pretty, uh, pretty happy with that, but excited for 2020 now. So as of the beginning of the year, so far, Clearside has taken quite a decline from where it closed on December 31st, but I still like it long term. The moves that I did make, I bought Catalyst Bio when it was uh, six and change to uh, lower my cost basis a bit, and I still like them. So overall, sitting at around negative two for the year so far, but it is early days. In terms of volatility, we saw an increase in expected volatility in the XBI and the IBB, and I think that's entirely due to the JP Morgan conference. So definitely keep an eye out on that. Keep an eye out of your favorite company, importantly, because there could be some big things that get announced during this conference. And with that, everybody, I want to thank you all so much again for watching or listening. Please leave a like or subscribe and tell a friend. And I'm going to wrap it up there, but thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you next time.